When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. This guest, I just was recounting with her, we met a decade ago. It feels like it feels like 10 months ago, but 10 years ago, my guest Tara McGuire actually was on the other side of the microphone with me when we launched our token project here in Vancouver and was one of our first major supporters to help us push that program throughout Vancouver. And that was like when I was thinking back about all the different ways that we've intersected over the years, that was the original point. And that's so indicative of your character because you've always looked to the best and the brightest of programming of people in our city and try to really uplift them. But today, I have you on the other side of the mic um, as a mother, as a potent writer, um, whose book we're going to talk about today, which is Holden After and Before, is an expression of your own grief created from the opioid crisis in the aftermath of Holden's passing. Uh, your poems and essays have also been prolific throughout this time. And they've been recognized by all sorts of places. The Writer Union of Canada, uh, Room Magazine, the Sunday edition, we caught some, the Vinyl Cafe on CBC. Like, it's the work that has come from you post has been so incredible. And some other titles that I want folks to, to look up, and we'll link all the stuff in the bio, are um, Hook and Anchor, Short Term, and I Can Feel Him Breathing, which I believe is one of the most potent pieces of writing I've experienced around this particular issue. Uh, so Tara, that's how I'm introducing you today, but how would you like to introduce yourself this morning? Oh, wow. I'm just a person doing my thing. I don't know. I, I used to be a radio broadcaster and I would fly that as my identity, but now I, I feel like I'm just a person, a, a writer, I guess. I'm a writer and an editor and I'm hopefully your friend. <laughs> you know, you, the, the latter part I can say for sure. And the other two parts I've been blessed to, to digest a lot of and excited to share a bunch of that today. And, you know, I think why I like to start the top of the show with how, how you introduce yourself is, is really centering energy around why I would also like to share you with everybody. And um, we've talked about this many times over the years, of course, but the ever-growing opioid crisis uh, is very, very, very personal in this conversation. And I would love you to start with the book, the beginnings of the book, and yeah, you know, your hopes for where it goes and, and, you know, where it comes from. Okay. I wrote this book as a response to the death of my son, Holden. He was 21 and I didn't know what to do. I mean, how can anybody know what to do? And my natural response was just to start writing. 
um, my thoughts and sort of journaling and poems actually were the first thing that came out because poetry can say things that prose cannot and song lyrics, you know, same. Um, so I just started venting, I guess, and processing and then realized that I didn't really, I'd always been a writer in terms of radio, but that's a different kind of writing. So then I sort of moved into educating myself and I went to the writer's studio at um, SFU downtown and started writing longer pieces and then really got interested in the craft of writing and uh, was accepted to the the writing program at UBC, the Masters in Creative Writing program. And so through all of that, I went in with intention to create some kind of a project that would honor Holden. And it went through many iterations and has now resulted in this book that just came out. And it's an incredible book. And I think it, it truly, truly is. And I think, you know, you can hear some trepidation in my voice today, which is, <laughs> which is very rare. And it's because this is obviously personal. I know you had met your son multiple times. Um, I know the work that has happened. You did? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I didn't know that. I think you and I, well, we did share it, but it was really shortly after his passing because uh, a lot of our writer friends were showing up to do pieces and tribute pieces uh, who we'd known together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's a... So zooming back out, the opioid crisis, um, I work, of course, on the downtown east side of Vancouver. Um, it is our doorstep every single day. We have mutual friends at the overdose prevention site, our dear friend Sarah Blythe, who set that space yeah. up and, and really bucked against the government to keep people alive. But all of this is in our daily vernacular and conversation. So the demystifying of what it looks like to be a drug user, quote unquote, is, is a centering point for what I want to talk about with you today. Because having lost your son, Holden was a great young man. You know, he was a centered young man. And this crisis took him, not because he was street entrenched, not because he was battling with those sorts of problems, because he was simply like many youth in that space. And do you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship with him as he moved through his teens and, and into his early 20s? Sure. Holden uh, was an artist, as you mentioned, a graffiti artist, but a fantastic musician. He would also write poems and that kind of thing, but, but he was incredibly sensitive. And I think that's one of the things that kind of gets lost is that it seems to me that the people we're losing through this overdose crisis are our most sensitive, creative, thoughtful, kind people. They feel the world a lot. And and to me, I think for Holden, I don't know because we never talked about this directly, but I think his motivations for taking substances was purely to feel better. You know, the world can be a painful place. And I mean, I'm 57 years old. When I grew up, I didn't have to think about climate or whether or not I could afford to live in my town or the divisiveness of the world and the racism and the violence and all of that stuff. I either I was oblivious or it just wasn't as prevalent, but Holden and others like him, I think perceived the world as a painful place. And so I, I used to be really judgmental about substance use and I would freak out when I would find his bag of pot or whatever. And, you know, we'd have these confrontations as a teen and then as a 20, early 20 person, you know, I, my response was to get really angry. Like, why are you doing this? This is so dangerous. 
And he would just be like, I have to do it in order to cope kind of thing. And so obviously I'm reverse engineering now and I, uh, but I see the concept of drug use differently in that it is a survival mechanism for some people. Like I do it with Netflix or tacos or whatever. Like I do it to take a break from the world. That was what was available to him. That was what made sense to him. And then at some point it became a problem. I, I still don't know the level of Holden's drug use. Nobody's telling me that part, Mark. So that's why you've noticed in the book, part of it's fiction. I've had to create a lot of those scenes. Um, but some people, uh, some of Holden's friends have been very forthcoming about his drug use, his questions about the drug use and his intention to stop actually as well. Didn't quite make it. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be the most heart-wrenching part for you as, as a mother, knowing that the pressures that were external were creating a necessity of escapism, which as you say, Netflix or food, um, sex addiction, shopping, and then the plethora of drugs and alcohol abuse that is so, so, so prevalent, right? We know that over 90% of the opioid deaths that happen are accidental. Oh. It's not regular users, right? I'm surprised it's not 100. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild because, you know, street users are obviously now using fentanyl because it has become, heroin does not really exist much on the streets anymore. It has become the drug of choice. But outside of them, it is, it is really prevalent in all of the recreational drugs and the, and the pieces that people are, you know, coming in for and also passing from um, is because of this, this toxic drug supply. Tara, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we can dig into a little bit more of that, but I'm really excited to unpack more of Holden's journey and your journey post. Um, and I'm just, I, I want to get into some excerpts from the book too. Folks, you're on Better with my dear friend, Tara McGuire. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. We are with my guest, Tara McGuire. And I thought <laughs> I could keep talking about the writing, but I would now that I have the author, I was unable to uh, hear you read excerpts from the book in person. So I'm going to you know, spoil myself and also the audience. Would you mind reading us a, a small passage to start off this next segment? Oh, sure. I'll just start from the beginning. Please. They told me his body lay on a mattress in a room with a window and a brick wall. They told me he was covered and peaceful. They told me he spoke of love that night, that he laughed. They told me he made plans for tomorrow before he closed his eyes. The next morning, in the warm heart of summer, my son's body lay cool and slack. The scaffolding that had held up his being for 21 years now absent. When his soul flew, the tent poles collapsed. Only a quiet skin inscribed with language remained. End questions. Since then, I've learned that dead children are not bound by earthly constraints. The stubborn ones disregard the limitations of oxygen and blood. I hold my son now, as I did for his breathing years, and ask him how such a beautiful choir could be so abruptly halted. From raucous, full-throated chorus to echoes. If I listen, if I listen very closely, he tells me. He tells me in the space just before a thought. 
He tells me inside the ripe combustion chamber of an idea. There is a place deeper than marrow. It aches. That is where he tells me. Oof. I got goosebumps <laughs> on my elbows somehow. I didn't know that those occurred. I actually that's, do too. <laughs> <laughs> that's new. And it's nice for holding to visit us in this moment as well. So out of grief comes so much power. Um, loss and loss of a family member uh, is so, it's so different and so undescribable. And I think putting into prose the way that you do and the way that you honor him and also the loss of any other mother uh, with this book is so, so powerful. And so I want to speak to you as the mother, but also as, as a human, the show is really about tools. Ultimately, when we decided to start this show 30 plus episodes ago, it was about how can we share story and also tools with the person who tunes in that can help them in their day-to-day life. And there is one thing that we will all face, and that is loss of a family member. And so, you know, I've obviously witnessed you from a distance and from text message and from, you know, short voice notes for a long time as this has been happening. Um, but would you be willing to share some of the tools that have really helped you to cope through this grief, including writing and, and the process for it? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm reluctant to give anybody advice because I hated getting advice from people, you know, <laughs> especially when the grief was so fresh. People are like, don't stay out too long. It's really important for you to get back into the world. I'm like, no, it's not. Mm. Not important at all. I don't know what I'm doing and it's just so painful. I think my big piece of advice would be to take your time as much time as you need. For me now, it's been seven years, Mark, and I still have days where I just clear my schedule and stay in bed. You know, like some days it just really hurts still. And I don't think that's something that's ever going to go away. You know, you lost your mom. And um, I've been doing a lot of talking about this book just yesterday, a woman we were doing a pre-interview for something and she had just lost her, a family member. And she said, this book is so important to me. And it was her grandfather. You know, it wasn't Mm. even a child. It wasn't anything to do with the the overdose crisis, but there's something about grief that's universal. And like you say, when it's a close family member who really, really meant something to you, it's just so difficult to understand. And that's one place in our society actually, where I guess we could do a better job of preparing ourselves for death of someone that's really close to us. But the main thing I would say is um, try and find ways to express yourself. Holden expressed himself through graffiti. That's a way that he found, you know, that he felt that he did have a voice. For me, it's writing, whatever that might mean. If you're struggling with the loss of someone, I always think it's better to try and make something or be helpful. Yeah. Oh, well, those two prompts lead us to so much, right? By making something or creating something or allowing energy to flow out of us, whether it's journaling or painting or cooking or whatever it may be that we do, whether it's holding an aerosol can and hitting a wall, whatever it may be that allows you to to transfer energy, because we as Western society don't have the same celebratory cultural impacts that others do for death, right? There is a full preparation. There's an understanding. There's ceremony. There's all of the things that happen outside of our really, really broken capitalist Western culture that allows for this processing. We are left to our individualism and bad advice. 
and let's just call a spade a spade, right? Like bad, bad advice comes in in just droves because people actually generally feel, but they don't have any tools either. So there's, I had a lot of empathy for that. My mom passed and I got a lot of notes and I love my friends and you know, I'm very frank. And so <laughs> they're like, how are you doing? And you know, for me, my mom was ill for decades and yeah. she was in a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And I was with her for the last five days of her life. And she'd already left us um, in her physical container. And she was, you know, breathing very, very uh, strained. And I wished for her peace. So there's like, my, my experience is very different than having a sudden loss um, and a tragic loss. And so to, to think that there is a, a universal piece of advice, it's, it's not. It's just, you know, do what feels absolutely right for you and feel your feelings. Yeah. And I think too, like some of the best things that, that I, I remember that feeling of not having a clue what to do and that we should have instructions. One of the things you touched on that we've lost is ritual. So we tried to create some of our own kind of ridiculous rituals for Holden, but we would like take his ashes places and we would um, always mention him at family dinners, like Christmas and that kind of thing. And we would wear his clothes and listen to some of his music and um, go on hikes and, and, you know, talk about him. Um, so that's one of the things, but I think I would receive messages from people saying, you know, here's a picture of today. I know you're inside the house. Here's a picture of today's sunset. And I'm thinking of Holden. Ooh. And I tried to do that with you. Like I was driving in North van. I'm like, here's a street sign that says Benita. I'm going to try and stand on the hood of my car and steal it for you. And all, all you, I think you want to know is that your person that you love so much and is now gone has not been forgotten. And people remember that you are struggling. There's that text message right there. Oh, sure really? Yeah, I got it. I got it up. I looked at it this morning. And, <laughs> and sorry for interrupting you. I just got excited there. And everything that you just shared is is really, it's, I mean, it's so, so fucking beautiful. You're going to have to beep that out. Um, because it, it truly is, how do I feel like I want to honor what's happened for our family? Because it's not just you. You know, you're, you're still a mom, you're still a wife, you're still like, you know, the matriarch of your family. So you have to create those rituals that are right sized for your family. And by the sounds of it, you created a lot of joy in there. Like, I just got a visual of you guys at the dinner table wearing different wrap t-shirts and got very excited about it. I was like, yo, that part, like, that's amazing. And then like, I'm thinking about my, so my dad calls me last week and he said, so I was just out with your uncle Joe, my dad's 77. And, and we'll be listening to this. I love you, Dad. Uh, and my Uncle Joe is about the same age as my, my mom's brother, my mom's baby brother. And they went to my gra- their grandfather, my, dad, my, my, my mom's grandfather's gravesite, and took a spade and illegally dug up some dirt and put some ashes in and covered it up. Like, it's, like a, it's like a spoof movie of old men. Like That was what they needed to do. They went and took some. We dedicated a bench to my aunt in Dartmouth. They took some ashes and spread it around there. They're like just... They're, they're doing what feels right and feels good for them. And I yeah. think between what you've shared and those things, for folks listening out there, it really is about you. It's not about what the outward world thinks of what you're doing with your process of your pain. It's truly about what's going to feel best and bring you joy. And what you think the person would also think is wonderful, right? Because they're, yeah. they're always, always with us. Um, two segments went way too fast. We're going to be right back on Better With My Friend Tara McGuire. Keep it locked.
Folks, you're back on Better uh, with my friend Tara McGuire. We are talking about grief, loss, art, her son. My mom made an appearance today, which is great. I can feel her in the room. And I, I wanted to start this one because uh, we touched on it in segment one, which was crisis impact on youth, right? And uh, I want to lead us in with an excerpt from the essay. I can feel him breathing. And the excerpt goes, when I messaged Sarah that my son had died of an opioid overdose and I wanted to learn about heroin use, she asked his age. I typed the number two and then the number one and pressed the little blue envelope. That statement and sentence in of itself is um, one of the greatest crises we're facing as a planet, as people, because the youth are facing things that you and I and a good chunk of the listeners never had to think about. I've got like E.T. in my brain riding my BMX over a ramp in a cul-de-sac. And literally the only thing on my mind was the Swanson TV dinner that I was going to have. Delicious. I never had to think. I never had to think about any of those things. And as we grew, of course, we had the complex abilities and understandings through our adulthood to then realize what's happening. And even with the climate and the crisis and the never-ending doom scroll of information, we are still as adults ill-equipped to deal with it. Yet, imagine being of that age bracket in that group. And so we know that Holden in particular and, and many of his friends and people all over the planet of this age are using opioids and many other means of escape, but opioids is what we're talking about today to numb the pain that the world is presenting them with. And I would love, um, you've obviously dug deep into this topic for personal experience, but also external. The woman, Sarah, who's quoted in this is our friend, Sarah Blythe, who runs OPS, um, I believe is the message that you sent. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us about the experience with Holden of those pains and, and what you've experienced since? Yeah, I, I'm no expert. I, you know, there's a lot of scientists and people working in policy that know a lot about this and have done a lot of research. But what I have found in, the, in sort of, you know, I always was looking for off ramps, like where could I have made a difference? How could I have changed this story for Holden or helped him in some way? And what I think is that, especially here in BC, it's pretty normal for kids to smoke pot or at least experiment with it. Alcohol is certainly widely acceptable behavior in high school. And there's even a scene in the book where I'm trying to teach Holden like the appropriate amount of alcohol to drink when he was going out right. to the skate park one night. And of course he was mocking me, but I was like, how do we train people for this world? Young people have no experience and remembering all the stupid things I did under the influence of alcohol. Like truly every bad or dangerous decision I ever made was because of alcohol. And so I think for Holden, that is where his difficulty lay at first. And then once he was, you know, you reach that point with, with enough booze where you don't care about anything. And that's when other substances would come into the picture. So I think what I realized is that I would try and talk to Holden more about his pain, hmm. about what was important to him. What was he worried about? How could, you know, what were some of the thoughts that were in his brain that were causing him to feel like this was a, a solution? Right. You know, let's try and, and backtrack a bit and find out what's going on. And maybe there's other ways that we can address these problems so you don't feel the pain as much and you don't need to numb that pain. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how you would ever quantify 
prevention. Um, but for some reason, Holden was at some metal show down at the at the rickshaw or Pat's pub or something is what I believe happened. And someone offered him some heroin and he was drunk enough to be like, ah, why not? I'll, I'll give it a try. And I don't know the extent of, of his heroin habit, but I've been told that actually, if you're, if you know, he was a researcher, he would, you know, most kids now are researchers. They look things up Mm -hmm. that heroin is actually one of the cleanest uh, street drugs you can find used to be, sorry, not anymore, but used to be. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, old me would have been like, holy, that is a really stupid and destructive decision. But Mm. now I want to look at it and say, okay, what are the motivating factors? And if we can talk openly about it, instead of having to hide it, then maybe we can find some solutions. There are incredible unmet mental health needs. Ideally, what I would like, Mark, is for mental health to be treated in the same way as physical health. You know, that you can go and see it. You can go to see a doctor, you can go to see a counselor, you can find some support on a weekly basis or whatever is deemed necessary for you until the pain goes away, as we would with a physical illness. I actually forget your original question because I'm just on a rant now, but keep going. (laughs) I think it was to do with my changed perceptions about drug use. Mm -hmm. No parent wants their kid to be using drugs. I'm not encouraging drug use. My daughter is 19 now. I don't want her using drugs. And obviously, you know, with her brother's passing, she's um, probably not using them. But in some ways, I want her to have that experience of like smoking a joint and going to a comedy. You know, like it's fun. Drugs are frightening now. Like poor kids. We used to like smoke homegrown and go and watch a prism concert. You know, there was there was no risk there. And now it's unfortunately such a dangerous landscape that I think we need to talk openly to our kids about the risks, about the motivations, and just have a conversation. If they are doing it, I would way rather be talking about it than being punitive and ignoring it or ignoring it. Definitely. You touched on a lot of things there. And I think, you know, just to further destigmatize, opioids are the number one thing prescribed to people who are facing pain. Right. So physical pain, sometimes even as loose as just general mental pain. All right. And so opioids, powerful, powerful, powerfully addictive drugs. Right. And so one of the big parts of research that I did when I was on the US side researching this stuff was around how do folks become street entrenched? How do we have so many veterans street entrenched? Right. And so that particular thing for me, I was like, I can't believe that these people are sent overseas to fight for freedom, quote unquote, and then come home and are discarded like garbage, essentially. Like genuinely, there is no support systems here. The VA is very broken. And the number one thing that happens is that the opioids are prescribed for pain, PTSD, damage to actual body. Those prescriptions run out. And then people move into illegal opioids, heroin or street drugs, because that's all they can genuinely afford. And that addiction cycle is there. So we are getting people addicted to opioids and then discarding them. And you'll find a lot of the same discussions happening on the downtown east side or any of the other places. And then the flip side of that is there is a full plethora of research youth, right? Who are just like, hey, what are the other drugs that are going to help me alter my state so I can feel more comfortable in my body or have a conversation? What does that look like? And two of my very, very best friends were heroin users are recovered but we're very high functioning, you know, one corporate uh, and one working right next to me for almost 10 years who are addicted to opioids. 
This, it's not it's not a strange thing. It's not an odd thing. It doesn't live in the streets. It's it's everywhere, and we are in part to blame because of our very broken medical and prescription service, and in other part to blame because of our external influences and lack of solutions for kids and society in general. It's it's just such a, a difficult trap, and so I just I also want to honor you for calling out like my kid wasn't just reckless, you know he was he was smart. And he, he made a choice and that choice wasn't actually reckless. You know, it, it may have been a bad one at the time, but he did the research and, you know, he's a smart kid and did the thing. This is continuing to hopefully bring the narrative forward that, you know, this isn't just, this isn't folks who are just in the street. These are our sons. And our daughters and our parents. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people come from, like you mentioned, workplace injuries. Holden had a surgery on his hand. Uh, and it was really painful. And I think there's, you know, there's a chapter in the book where he talks about that initial feeling of having that, um, pain medication in his body and how it made him feel. I have no idea how it made him feel, but Mm -hmm. I've had, I've had hydromorphone, you know, I've had, uh, after surgery and it's pretty okay, actually. (laughs) (laughs) This, and and this is the easy, easy trap and the, the, you know, the easy access or the gateway, as we will say, folks, you are on better. We're going to dig right into this next part and also talk a little bit about the stats on the Canadian side around opioids and and what's happening, because this is definitely the time to be having this conversation. So you can have the conversations that Tara did have with Holden and, and have these conversations with your kids or your family or your friends. You're on better. We will be right back. back to better. One of the things that my guest Tara shared just before we jumped off was we have to treat mental health the same as physical health. I have been yelling this from every stage, every room since 2011 or 12. Mental health is physical health. There is no distinction. There's no distinction. The stats tell us one in three people will suffer directly from some type of mental illness in their life. The stats are bigger than that for sure. I've had multiple diagnoses myself. This is not an odd thing. It's not weird. And the more that we are able to talk about it, talk about our friends with it, treat it as such. I have worked with a lot of people who are in triage and have big T trauma, including myself. And my reactions in the real world to humans are often too big. They're not right-sized because of mental health issues that I carry. Now, if I am able to share that with my loved ones and my loved ones are able to reflect that back to me and they may have issues themselves, we can, just like if I was walking with the cane, you got to slow down for me. Yeah. We, we can address these things and we can truly destigmatize this stuff and then help people feel safer to have conversations so they don't need to turn to alternate methods. We are the love that we need. These things are really important. Tara, please jump in. Well, I think that's that's where younger people, the youth, can really lead the way on this because much like the work that's being done around gender language, for example, young people don't see, at least people in Vancouver, I know our part of the country is pretty progressive, 
they have no problem with shifting pronouns. It's just not even a thing. Mm-hmm. But as older people, you know, we get kind of confused. And I, I talk to my daughter a lot because she's um, in the book. She's mentioned in the book. And in the afterward, I talk about her mental health a little bit. And I, I, she hasn't read the book yet, but I wanted to run it by her and say, like, how do you feel about me talking about you struggling with depression and anxiety? And she's like, mom, absolutely talk about it. It's, it's what's going on. It's not embarrassing. She has friends now that she can say, like, I'm having a panic attack. I'm really struggling with anxiety. I can't get myself to school today. And they they have skills. They're like, do you want to vent? Do you want solutions? Do you want me to come over? Like, what do you need? And so they're really, really getting good at it. And we as older people, you know, could really look to the younger generation as um, guides, through this, she is not embarrassed about talking about her mental health. She has a counselor on speed dial whenever she needs it. She knows that's available for her. It's not cheap. I'll tell you that we have a very privileged life. We can afford to pay. um, Thank goodness, because their waiting lists are ridiculous. The costs are ridiculous. And I'm just, I'm just such a big advocate that we need to be able to talk about our mental health without embarrassment. And I think that's the biggest lesson from my book is that if Holden had been able to come to me and say, look, I've I've made some mistakes. I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do. I don't even know why I do this, but I seem to have uh, some kind of addiction here. Um, I'd be, I would have been freaked out at first, but now I have more skills. Like now I'll be like, okay, you have this illness. Let's find out what's going to work best for you. What do you think would work best? What do you need right now? How can we, how can we keep you safe while you figure this out? And um, I think that's the big shift in the in the conversation where he was uh, m- most people that die of overdose now do it alone. They don't yes. have people to talk to. They're yes. worried. They're ashamed of what their family and friends are going to think of them, predominantly men, by the way, who have a harder time expressing feelings. And I think if we can just open it up and be like, wow, actually people on both sides of me are struggling in the same way. I'm not weird. There's nothing wrong with me. I have an illness and I need some help. 100%. The single biggest cause of addiction is isolation and instability. I'm alone. I don't know what the future holds. And it's usually a false narrative of being alone. Yeah. That no, nobody will understand me. One of the other things we can do um, if you have younger people in your life or even like whatever, same age is, and and you do this so well, Mark, is to find joy and to, and to shine the light on joy, because it's really easy to think about the world as such an endlessly negative place. And I hate social media for that. Um, But I think that if you look outside, you know, it's a beautiful morning. And I think it's important to remember that aside, along with all the terrible stuff that's happening in the world, human beings are inherently beautiful and kind. And I think the ones that get the most attention are the terrible ones, but there are a majority of people who are lovely and are doing lovely things. And there is joy to be found in the world. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Yeah. Well, that takes us full circle to my introduction of you, right? Like you used your platform as a radio host for many, many years to shine lights on these stories when those stories weren't the ones that get the the ad revenues, right? This is not, we are clickbaited by negative stories and, you know, haven't been the focus of it. And those articles being the most read ones, like this, people are so addicted to bad news or the fall of something or, you know, literally what we're looking at in the news right now, the top five things, the one in celebrity is around it, a person who's suffering deeply from bipolar disorder. And nobody knows what that means and thinks he can just take a pill and switch it off. And it's, 
it's we're watching it like a circus and we're enabling it and it's it's so sad to see but there's also a tremendous opportunity within that to say wait a second what does this mean oh this is what happens when you do that and this is what these drugs do and what are the long-term effects and what are the causes because folks often when they are suffering from mental illness do move into that opioid realm as well and to give folks some some idea of like what this crisis across canada and you can just 10x the stats for the us because it's pretty much on par because of the population size there have been tens and tens and tens and thousands of deaths we're, we're not talking about a few hundred people we're not talking about you know every once in a while it's been on average for the last five to six years between 10 and 15 people a day, a day who are dying because of these overdoses. And the predominant factor is in and around controlled substance acts and a toxic drug supply. All right. We, we need to, we need to advocate for safe supply. We need to advocate for drug users in general. Uh, and what, the big separation for me, and this is one that I'll bang the drum of forever, is if you live in a privileged space, you're taking a prescription opioid or whatever other prescription pill you take, and you know that it's regulated and it's safe for you, you are using drugs. You are a drug user. The person on the street who does not have that luxury, the person who is recreational or hiding or who is a youth who doesn't have that luxury is dying. And it truly is that, that simple. The discernment between these two supplies is one is being made a ton of money off of and it has been legalized and considered okay that has very similar effects to the one that is not legal that is killing our youth, our friends, our family. And if, if we can take anything away from this is we need to stop losing lives and we need to stop holding these stigmas and we need to stop holding stale dated legislation that is killing people. Um, yeah, I'm going to kick my soapbox aside now. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to bring it back uh, to my guest who has so graciously given us her time and her heart today in and around this crisis. I would love you to just lead us out with a little bit around what happens for you next as a writer. Um, I have, uh, I'm just supporting the book right now. I'm doing a little bit of a book tour. I'm out, heading off to Ontario on Sunday some stuff there and I've been asked to speak to a number of groups I actually got con I wrote an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail recently and I got contacted by a judge from um, a BC provincial court judge and there so this is where change is happening Mark there uh, they have an annual conference of educating all of their bench judges so there's going to be 150 provincial court judges in the room and he's like, you can talk, their, their theme is mental health and addiction. You can talk about anything you want. And so um, recently I saw Gabor Mate speak and I went to him after and said, okay, I have this opportunity to speak to these judges. What should I tell them? He's like, I would like to speak to them. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I know I don't want to screw up the opportunity. He's like, tell them about trauma. Mm -hmm. Tell them that people are committing crimes because they are traumatized and because of the trauma, those parts of their brain that make rational decisions are not working and Period. tell them that they need help instead of punishment. So yes. I don't want to be the overdose mom. I really don't. I want to be known more as a writer, mm -hmm. uh, but I just, um, I'm hoping I can make some change and then I can write something funny or light. <laughs> Well, you already have made tremendous change to those who are trying to understand, to comprehend, to, to find some way to, to funnel their grief. 
Um, you've done a tremendous service for all of us in this space. Um, love you very much. Very proud to have had you on the show. Folks, if you are listening on the radio, we're about to talk more about the judges and our friend Gabor Mate, who's been a guest on the show and will be back with us soon, and trauma and the impact. So if you are tuned in on the radio, jump over to wherever you consume podcasts and, and join us there. Tara, again, love you. Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks, Mark. Love you too. Okay, folks, if you're on the podcast, here we go. And what a le- what a lead-in. You're like, so I was talking to Gabor. I'm talking to the judges. I'm like, we're going to need a whole other episode for this part. This is the part of advocacy. This is where you become the tip of the spear. The way that consumption works in our society is, you said, I don't want to be known as the overdose mom. Well, if the judges know you as that and you help with policy change, I'm afraid that moniker is going to need to stick in that circle. Like, what does that look like? You know what was so cool is the judge who called me, he's like, I read your op-ed piece because it was, I don't know if you saw it, but it was all about language I did. and about how we talk about, um, you know, it's substance use disorder. And we talk, we use all kinds of disparaging words talking about people with addiction, but it is a substance use disorder and that's new language. And actually now we're not even calling it the opioid crisis. We're calling it the overdose crisis because Fentanyl and carfentanil are finding their way into all kinds of different substances that people are using, cocaine and even pot and whatever. Um, Holden did not die of a fentanyl overdose. Right. He died because he was using heroin that w- that had other trace elements of whatever in it and alcohol. He died because he made a mistake that day. You know, he wasn't trying to die. And I think it's important to remember that people who are struggling and, and who are represented in these horrifying statistics, over 30,000 families, of which Holden is not one in that stat because he died in 2015 before they started counting. And this year there's already been several thousand. So it's closer to Mm 35,000. Anyway, the playing field is very, very big. And so, you know, people, yes, fentanyl is a huge factor and, and we do need safe supply. But my angle is we need to find out why people are numbing themselves with these substances at all and help at that point. And so in speaking with this room full of judges, what I am hopefully going to offer is that, you know, when you're sitting there and someone presents in front of you who has committed a crime based on their drug use, you have an opportunity for an off ramp. Mm. You have an opportunity right there to provide care instead of punishment. And he was actually very, very open. He's like, yeah, we need to be in the prevention business. We understand, we want to know the human impact of families. And I was very impressed with the dialogue and with the invitation to their conference. So, um, and he said, the judges really are interested in learning about these personal impacts. And, and so, you know, I, I asked what, what tools they have. And he's like, really, we don't have much. We can sentence someone or we can let them go. Right. And I'm like, okay, this is where you you guys, as a bunch of powerful people, aka provincial court judges, can advocate for other tools. Maybe you can connect someone at that point with some, um, if they're interested. And often, you know, I found out, I didn't know this, that people can negotiate a lower sentence if they commit to going into recovery. Correct. And, and we all know that recovery, there's even a, a drug court in, in downtown Vancouver, there's not a drug court anywhere else. There's That's a separate. Right. And I'm like, okay, if you have the ability to do that, if someone presents in front of you, think of it as an opportunity to help them access the resources that they need at that point, and then stay with them. 
Mm-hmm. You know, continue that support. Don't just be like, oh yeah, you you need to go to five meetings and then, you know, you're off the hook. We yeah. all know that substance use disorder is a is a lifelong illness, much like diabetes or cancer or whatever, where you're going to need support all the way through. And so let's set those up. Huge, huge. As we say, bars, all of that. Like that's a, that's just... <laughs> Is that a compliment? I don't know that. It one. is. It's a huge compliment. It's, it's a rap compliment, right? It's so okay. hip hop MCs write bars right there. They're, right. they're your prose, your poetic prose would be called a bar, like it would okay. be a music, right? So that's me yelling. Everything you just said was bars. Um, <laughs> so on this exact note, yesterday in the United States of America, CVS, Walgreens agreed to pay over fourteen billion in settlements around the opioid crisis. This is like this is moving in legislative ways. It's moving in court ways. There is this is actually changing, and it's changing because of the loss of lives of people who wouldn't necessarily be losing their lives, right? It, when it starts to impact you closer to home, which is why we talk about humanizing any of these issues, right? Because it can't just—it's it's everybody's issue. Yeah, here's an example. Holden had a hand injury. He had a hand surgery. Run of the mill. He was prescribed. Um, I don't think it was oxy, but whatever. He was prescribed something and they made him sick and he decided not to take them. Mm. Great. But he, he'd already, he understood what that felt like. Our daughter, 10 years younger, went to get her wisdom teeth pulled. I had to say to the, like they give you the protocols. I said to the dentist, to the surgeon, what can we give her that is not opioid based for pain? And he's like, well, we have this other protocol, you know, Advil, Tylenol every two hours, like mega dosing on those. And, and that should do the trick. I'm like, great. If it's possible, why are we even prescribing these highly addictive medications? To that people? part, that part. And then I had, I had a doctor who was doing an internship in, uh, in VGH and he read some of Holden's story and said, can I talk about Holden at my presentation? Because the typical post-op procedure for all of the surgeons in Vancouver after like knee, hip, back, back surgery, whatever are, 10 days of opioids. He said, I want to change that. So he's like, I'm going in to these people who've been surgeons for 30 years, and this is just what they do and saying, okay, guys, let's give two days of acute pain. Let's check in not only on the stitches, but how you're doing mentally. And then we take the medication back that's unused and we offload you onto Tylenol or Advil or whatever, meditation, massage, like whatever can help instead. So they're, they really are trying, it seems. And now, by the way, this doctor that, that just um, altered the prescribing practices, post-op prescribing practices at VGH because of Holden's story, he's now moved to Arkansas. And so he's talking about now the American Medical Association and trying to change those prescribing practices. So I really do feel like we are going to bring the numbers down, but it takes a long time to turn around a big tanker ship. So a couple of, yes, a couple of things. One, what a gift Holden and you are giving continually and consistently towards this movement. Full stop statement. And that will continue in perpetuity, literally forever. When you have judges and doctors and lead people using his senseless loss of life as an example to change the way people operate and save lives, that is worth calling out, period. And just like, let's hold that space for a moment. The secondary portion of this is 
what just happened in the U.S. with those lawsuits. This is you know a decade plus of these lawsuits. Those that hammer falling. One of the, I believe it was one of the negotiating lawyers, um, Michael Geller said, we know that reckless profit-driven dispensing practices fueled the crisis, but we know just as surely that with better systems in place and proper heeding of red flag warnings, pharmacies can play a direct role in reducing opioid abuse and saving lives. Yes. You know who's next to fall? The doctors. And they're well aware. This, I'm certain this article has hit every single doctor's inbox, right? Doctors aren't evil. Doctors are doing what they're trained to do in medical school. And so what has to happen, well, some doctors are evil, but the, <laughs> but, um, the, the protocols need to change. The, the, the education needs to change. And I think people are well aware now of how dangerous these prescribing practices are. So big shifts are going to happen, Mark. You're right. Definitely. And apathy and flippancy have no excuses in the loss of life. Like I, I, I am not a fan of the medical system, and I'll say that just by being by my mom's bedside for 30-plus years and watching them almost kill her multiple times. I am not a fan of traditional Western medicine and the way it works. I live with a lifelong disease myself. The diagnosis and the advices that I've been giving, had I listened, I'd already, already be dialyzing or dead. And, you know, it's reckless. And the fact that we trust this is, is an absolute um, it, it takes our lives and it takes people's lives. And so there's wonderful doctors out there. There's wonderful nurse practitioners. There's wonderful EMTs that we work with regularly. But I think that if we consistently say, well, these are the practices and this is how we uphold this thing, we know that big pharma's pockets have lined every single GP walk-in or doctor's office for decades and decades and decades. And so I think Yes, you're right. There are great people and, and people follow practices. But I think that this recklessness being called out, the pharmacies falling, the doctors yeah. will have to absolutely yeah. put themselves in check. Can, can, can you imagine? I go and have a hip replacement. They're like, cool, here's 10 days of heroin. Figure it out. What? Yeah, which is what used to, used to be the case. So now what they're moving toward is come back in. Let's check on you. How are you doing with your pain management? How, how is that affecting you? Like, these are now additional questions that are being asked. And some people are saying, like, I actually kind of like my pain management, you know, and they're like, okay, well, let's try and find something else that works for you. Because the pain's not necessarily going away, but finding ways to work with it in a healthy way that doesn't lead people into, into some kind of substance use disorder. And, you know, it's like grannies and all kinds of people that are getting into this because nobody wants to be in pain. No one wants to suffer. Definitely not. My my aunt Diane, who's one of my mentors, same disease that I have, same disease my mom had, polycystic kidney disease, um, was very mm. much, very much in the opioid cycle. And I mean, for, for so many years, like the way that it affected and impacted all of her interpersonal relationships, et cetera, it was, just, it was devastating to our family. And, and to watch it, and it was the doctors continually upping dosages and opioids, you know, we know how they work is that they, they activate all the most powerful reward centers in our brains, right? Endorphins. They really, the amygdala loves them and they muffle our, our sense of any sort of pain. They help us dissociate. They give us feelings of real pleasure and a sense of well-being that is unmatched, right? So if you, if you throw something in your mouth and your whole day goes upwards, but then, you know, you've become disconnected with reality and the rest of that, plus the other side of it just is dark. It's darker than the start. So the fact that we prescribe these things for quote unquote pain 
is absolute insanity to me. So I just, I really appreciate the, the sharing of not only how you've experienced it, um, but what the work looks like going forward. So when you're talking to our friend Gabor and he says, I want to speak in that room, you know, do, are you guys <laughs> swapping notes at that point? Cause I want to hear what, what is said. <laughs> No, no, I just was fangirling <laughs> at the Writers' Festival and had a chance to give him a copy of my book and I got his book and I just said, um, you know, I just, it was a very short conversation, but I thanked him for his work. And by the way, some of the things that he says, I'm not a fan of. He always blames everything on the mothers, which <laughs> I don't really appreciate. The whole attachment principle. It's like, dude, I tried my best, you know? Well, okay. And, and we always lead from personal experience, right? So when Gabber was on the show with us uh, the first time, um, he showed us a picture post recording of his mother holding him and uh, as a as a newborn. And I think, you know, the quote was, look at my eyes. Right. So he was given re- his mother was given really bad uh, coaching and information around how to raise him. And when he would cry, she would ignore him. And so there's that like initial attachment stuff that he he definitely digs into, which is true. Like it, it definitely holds in truth in that place. But you're right. He does lean in heavy there. Um, and I think, you know, folks, if you're listening and you haven't listened to the Gabor Mate episode yet, uh, please do. Do check it out. It's powerful medicine around trauma and um, around some whys of dealing with people in addiction and mental health crisis. Yeah. And I think, obviously, it's New York Times bestseller for many, many weeks. It's it, People are finding it to be um, relevant work. And, I, you know, it's going to do a lot of good. But it's like, then what? Yeah, I, I've had a traumatic life okay, so I've made some poor decisions. I'm in a, not the best place. Then what, you know, then we have also our own capacity to have agency over our lives and to try and move in healthier directions, very slow steps. And that's kind of, um, I think we can't give up our own responsibility for our mm. own lives completely. Mm. We have to understand, have compassion and empathy and then give people agency so that they you, like, this is your life. You know, what do you want to do with your life? I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to offer you help, but this is you, you know, you have power. Take mm. some of it. I want you to say more about that. Like, you know, and, and let me just give it a little bit of framework before you do like understanding th- that there are parts of advice um, from Gabber's realm for other, from other realms are, which <laughs> let's say that they border on Buddhist beliefs of, you know, of certain parts of, of, of autonomy and also like, you know, you are not responsible for, for X, Y, and Z. But I like what you're saying here about responsibility. So please continue. I don't really know, but I, you know, I think it's, there's no, there's no very quick fix, which tends to be what Western medicine is always looking for. And I think human beings are complex. We always have been. We, we can exist with darkness and light inside of us at the same time. And um, we are all f- flawed and to expect those flaws and to not criticize them, but to try and embrace them and say, okay, yeah, maybe I, maybe I do struggle with PTSD or maybe I, I, I do have an anxiety disorder. What can I learn about that? And what do, what can I, what tools do I have that I can be more, uh, instead of blaming it on not getting care, blaming it on the government, whatever. Yeah, those institutions are faulty. Absolutely. But everyone has the opportunity. Like, 
And I struggle with it every day. Do I want to stay in bed all day or do I want to get up and go for a walk? What's sure. best for me? You know, it's, it's, it's hard. Life is hard every day. And I just don't want people to feel hopeless. You know, like I think if you are really struggling with your mental health, if you're honest with yourself, you know, and I've been in deep depressions and you don't want to do anything, maybe give yourself, um, maybe think about what power you have. I have the power to get up out of my bed and walk around the block. And I know that after that, I will feel 1% better. You know, it's not going to change anything drastically, but it's, I think it's like teaching people how to move in a positive direction instead of to dwell on the negativity of the circumstances that they had no control over. Let's kind of look at some of the things that we do have control over. I don't even know. Like I'm just totally armchairing right now. <laughs> well, armchairing has been the best part of the interview. So, so please keep going. <laughs> I think that people have choices, you know, Mark, you can choose to have 17 cocktails on Friday night and feel like shit for the next week, or you can, and that's probably not the best time to be making decisions <laughs> quite honestly on, you know, um, but, but I think if we maybe just say, you know, I do have some agency over my own life and what's the best decision for me right now. Yeah. I mean, I've, people are experts in their own lives. Quote, a, you know, one of my favorite people, Janice Abbott. And people lie to themselves all the time. Constantly. Well, oh, here's the other thing. We have the or tell stories that aren't true, <laughs> and we also digest stories at an, an insurmountable rate from socials, from our external influences, the socialization and green lighting of alcohol abuse and addiction, the 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 consistent cool hunting of narcotic use by every single you know musician and artist from you know 1955 onwards. Like it's all of these external influences make us think that we are the coolest. Like I was, I was the Hunter S Thompson, Graham green, like, you know, live fast, die young was, was literally cool. It was like, you know, you know, the beautiful die young because that that's how life goes. And it's, it's also insane and so toxic that we also are just like, yeah, but X or yeah, but Y or, but my friend circle or, but my external influences and, but the music I listen to and, but the clothing designers that I buy and, but the people that I like literally every influence is saying to you, make a bad decision. Yeah. But Hunter S Thompson killed himself. Yep. He was a terribly unhappy person. So if you really look at the truth of it, it did not offer him a good life. You know what's cool, Mark? Going to a thrift store, finding a cool pair of grandpa jeans and having dinner with your mom. That's what's cool. <laughs> Talk to me about it. The impact is cool. Doing the work in the neighborhood is cool. Like, like make a collage, you know? A hundred percent. Look, I think, you know, I, I say all of these things just because I, we've lost so many friends to suicide. We've lost so many people to accidental overdose. We've lost so many people to senseless death because of alcohol-related bad decisions. I've lost count. And before my mom passed, I was, I was writing something on social just because that's where I share as a journal often. And I lost three of my best friends in like 10 months. And you know the the grief compounds and then you you disassociate from the grief because i don't you don't know how to move through it anymore and i have all the tools i have the training and i've got certifications i have been dealing with death since i was 9 years old in a very real way and i still look at the lives that the people that i love led and with all of the, the reasoning etc they fell back into pressures often 
um, and escapism because of the simple inability to have uh, the tools and the tools to process. And, you know, that is, it is one of the design centers. It is the design center of why I'm sitting here in a microphone with you. And I do this multiple times a week is like, this, we have to destigmatize all of these things and make it okay to not be okay. Yeah. Like I'm in pain. This sucks. This hurts. I don't like this. It's very uncomfortable. Yes. You don't have to be like, oh, but, it, oh, but actually look at all the things you have to be grateful for. I don't think that's helpful. I think what's helpful is like, yeah, <laughs> yep. It totally sucks. And I'm here to be in the mud with you. That part. That part. And just to, to know that there are answers to your pain that aren't um, escapism. You know, like talking about those influences and those, those quote unquote heroes, you know, my childhood teenage friends and I would listen to the doors. Like we would go back and listen to stuff from the 60s and 70s movements and like the more painful and the more twisted and the more hurtful it was lyrically, the Jeff Buckley's of the world, the more it made us feel. And we used drugs and alcohol very specifically, and I've talked about this ad nauseum, but I share it again because of the, where we are today, um, as, an, as an ability to actually share our feelings mm -hmm. late at night. You know, standing in the kitchen late at night with drugs and alcohol, you could actually talk about how you were feeling. And the great part about it was the next day you could pretend you didn't remember. You had the out, Right. And the conversations didn't continue. And in, in my own personal sobriety, I realized very quickly that those conversations are all I do. It's, it's my entire life. It's my entire work. It's my life's work. It's how I show up for my, my teams, my employees, how they show up for me. You know, it becomes how we stay alive. And, and I say that with all sincerity. Um, I had my dear friend Jennifer Crawford on the show uh, a, few, a few months back. And we talked about authenticity. And I, I said to her, you know, we were both poster children of the movement of being your true self and not, not inauthentically authentic, being yourself and, you know, warts and all. And she said, you know, quote unquote, authenticity is how I stay alive. It's not a choice for me. If I don't do that, I will not be able to survive. And that it hit me like in my chest, like literally somebody had dropped me off a two-story building. So I was like, that is so incredibly powerful. If we can't be ourselves, we use escapism or we use drugs or we use like alcohol or we use these things to define the people that we think we're supposed to be. And then there we lose ourselves. And it's, it's so painful. Um, well, I feel like this conversation could literally go another hour. <laughs> very easily but i want to be respectful of your time i also know that you are on tour with this book you're going to see dear friends of ours across the country i'm so proud of your success with it and you know i think another another part of this is when you take something powerful the medicine that is powerful in a passing and you channel it into medicine for others advocacy for others um, there is no higher calling and so uh, love and appreciate how you show up. And if there's anything that you'd like to share, you know, the mic is yours. Um, I guess I'd just like to say that, you know, some people have said they're worried about reading the book or they're afraid that reading the book will be a painful thing. And then they find, and I don't know how it landed with you, Mark, but they find, oh, it, there's actually so much love in it, you know, and um, I encourage people to read, read the book and, understand that a person can struggle and still be 
valid and worthy and lovable and charming and funny and all of those things. So don't be afraid to read it. I hope you enjoy it and um, let me know what you think. Absolutely. And I'm going to finish with this one quote um, from I Can Feel Him Breathing. Uh, Folks, there of course will be lots of resources if you find yourself struggling in any way, shape or form. Please do seek out the help that you need. Uh, Do not be afraid to seek out the help you need or share with your loved ones exactly what is happening for you. Uh, Believe in them. And if if somebody doesn't show up for you, move to the next person and keep that narrative alive and and be comfortable um, that it's okay to not be okay. The quote from I Can Feel Him Breathing says, hundreds, no, thousands of sons and daughters have birthed their last exhales in this postal code. I never cared that much about it before. Before when these people were different from me, when they were just news stories or statistics I could ignore. Someone else's problem, but I can't look away anymore. I can't pretend I'm better. I am not better. Well, I certainly hope that this last hour um, makes everybody who's listened feel a little bit better and a little bit more equipped to deal with the pains of our day-to-day lives um, and with the grief of losing people that are close to us. Thanks for being with us today, Tara. Thank you again. Love you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Mark. Hope to see you soon. You know you will. Bye.